Hello, and welcome to The Promise of Discovery, a podcast where members and investigators at the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center talk about their research in intellectual and developmental disabilities. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacology at Vanderbilt, and I'm here with Brad Greeter, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Anesthesiology. So hi, Brad. Hi, Erin. Um, so I'm actually really excited. So Brad and I are going to chat a little bit about um, some work that Brad had um, funded actually through the, the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center, um, and I was also working on it with him. So I actually, this will be a great conversation because one, I'll get to learn more about what Brad's side is. And two, I have a little bit of perspective on kind of why we're doing this and why it's important. Um, so actually let's start with like a little bit of maybe background. And so um, Brad, like you wanna tell everyone kind of how long you've been at Vanderbilt and kind of where you came from and what you're doing. Um, so this is actually my second stint at Vanderbilt. I came to Vanderbilt back in 2001 as a graduate student where I did my PhD in the lab of Dr. Danny Winder in the Department of Microphysiology and Biophysics. And when I left, uh, the, one of the, my uh, committee members actually told me he'd like to recruit me back. And I thought it was just you know, being nice. And it turns out that he was, he was this, this guy was amazing. His name's Eric Delpierre. And when I had an opportunity to come back to Vanderbilt, I, I jumped on it. Vanderbilt's such a wonderful place. So I've been here this, as an assistant professor for seven years now. Yeah, it's, I will second that it's a great place. Um, when I was interviewing too, I was kind of going to all these places. There were a lot of good places, but every time I talked to anyone at Vanderbilt, it was like almost like this cult following about how great it was. Like, you know, when you like, like my husband's a Grateful Dead fan and like the way those people talk about the dead, that's how Vanderbilt people talk about <laughs> Vanderbilt. And I was kind of like, okay, this is like maybe too good to be true, but like I have to like try this out. And it is like, it is like the best research environment. Good people, good science, everyone's supportive and nice and a cool city. I think it's just like, it's a really unique place. And I, I, I've been a, enough places to know that there are not really other places like it. So it's not really that surprising that a lot of people, you know, go do grad school here, leave and then try to come back. Um, but I think that's what makes it so unique is that there's a lot of people doing really cool, cool stuff. I actually, one of the, the, before we get into the research, one of the things I think is um, kind of most unique about Brad is that in addition to doing like this, this amazing science that is really kind of influential in the fields, he also ha owns a farm. That's like, I don't understand how you have the time to do that. Like I barely have the time to take care of myself and go to the grocery store and you're doing like full-time farming on the side, but, uh, so what's what's harder, the science or the the farming? Uh, they both have their uh, their issues. They, they also have their similarities. Uh, a lot more physical and labor involved in farming, that's for sure. But it's yeah. all great collaborators. So I have uh, my dad still back home, and and I work with him on the farm, and my twin brother as well. And you know, it's just like here at Vanderbilt, you got to have collaborators. It's the science, you got to have collaborators with farming too. You know, the thing that I think is the, the kind of most interesting after getting in science, if you're not like in the science field, is you have this idea that it's just like a crazy old man in a basement, like mixing solutions and you get into science. And as someone who is in sports, so sports is like my farming, um, you start to realize the overlap between these kind of different, different kind of fields that require kind of motivation, perseverance 
resilience and kind of how those same things apply. And I think actually a lot of those experiences in the real world are kind of what makes some scientists so uniquely good at the management aspect, the kind of motivational aspects of these jobs, this job that's actually way more important than I think people realize. Um, so anyway, that was my, I think that's a, a cool thing. So let's, let's talk about this, um, the, the research a little bit. So do you want to like kind of give people maybe a, a rundown of kind of what, what the research in your lab is and kind of how this project fits into that? So yeah, so the research in the lab is really built around developing an understanding of the physiology of motivational behaviors. So what, what are the molecular mechanisms that lead to behaviors? So, you know, I first got into this field and I want to know how does the brain work? How do we learn something? And then remember what's going on, you know, years later. And one of the coolest ways that we could actually model that uh, in science was to look at the reward pathway. So we can give an animal, uh, you know, drug of abuse such as cocaine and look at responding to that drug and how that changes behavior. And that is a form of learning memory that we can then look at the mechanisms. And the mechanism that I looked at was synaptic plasticity. So how does the brain adapt to a stimulus, an environmental stimulus? And that really led me to dive into, um, again, how these circuits, these, how these different brain regions are connected and how that strength of that connection changes, then leading to that behavioral adaptation. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the things that, well, it's also what I, I get excited about is like kind of learning and memory. But I think what people don't always realize is that like kind of at the core of every single behavior is this like motivation to do something and the decision to do it. So, you know, you make a decision to eat a candy bar or not. And this process is really, you know, it's fundamental to survival. Like without that, you don't survive. But then it's also the process that's most often dysregulated in disease, right? So people who have binge eating disorders, like, yeah, you eat a candy bar or not, but they don't know when to stop. People who have addiction, they're making decisions at the, in the face of negative consequences. So this kind of core learning about kind of actions and outcomes and how much you value them is really the, the central process that guides everything we do. And then yet is also the central process that's dysregulated in nearly every you know, neurodevelopmental or psychiatric disease. And so it's kind of this cool hub for understanding the brain on a basic level, how do, what makes us work, but then also understanding what goes wrong when there's disease and how we can kind of use that to kind of correct these, these not, that not correct, but maybe like alleviate some of the symptoms that we're, we're seeing, which I think is a kind of cool hub. It's not just one or the other, it's kind of both. Um, so, um, oh, so actually this is interesting. So how, so first of all, how is your, your lab, so kind of like, how is the structure of your lab? So, so I think one thing that's really interesting to people um, who aren't like in the weeds in these fields is kind of how these labs function. And so is your lab, so your lab is postdocs, some graduate students and undergrads, like how do you kind of structure it and like who's doing the work and how is, how are these projects moving forward? Uh, so it's primarily driven by um, graduate students who then, train undergrads as well to help extra hands. Um, so we, each of the graduate students develops, working with me and others, they develop an idea and they are able to give an opportunity to chase that idea with a lot of steering uh, from behind. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, and that leads to, um, you know, 
this a diversity of ideas so that they are able to bring their own ideas and they, they learn to be encouraged, let's say, to bring their own ideas to the forefront of the project and to, to give us really, uh, to give me a novel insight, hey, here's a different way to think about this. Now, I've been trained to think about it in a certain way for all these years. And it's really a lot of fun to see the trainees, the students and the postdocs bring in new ideas and diversify our, our direction this is the best part of this job. You know, when I was younger, I thought, oh, I really like science. I love science. Science is great. But then when I started to kind of move up in this career, you realize that way more of it is like helping people develop their ideas. And like the greatest part is that, you know, I get older, but my lab doesn't. So I'm just getting older, but there's just new young people coming in. And so like every day there's somebody who has a thousand times more energy than me that's just excited to discover something. And I get to be there for that. And then they teach me stuff. And so like, this is a career where every day there's something that one, you know, I didn't know, but two, I love to argue. And so the greatest thing about this career is it's like in a giant argument, you argue with someone and then you do the experiment to prove who was right. And then you do it again. And so it's this kind of fun process where you see the students get better and better at beating at arguments. And then it's like, you realize that at some point they know more than you do about their topic. And it's kind of this like satisfying moment where you're like, okay, I've created somebody who's an independent thinker that's challenging me. And that that's, that's the fun thing. And I think that's how discoveries are made. I feel the same person doing the same thing over and over again. And I think the diversity of thought and, and Vanderbilt has an insanely good graduate student community. Oh my gosh, these students, like some of them are smarter than I am now by a long shot. I can't even imagine me in graduate school at the same time trying to compete with any of these kids. Um, but yeah, so so that's actually great. And then Brad, Brad and, and, and I have a kind of similar lab structure, which is great. And also too, I think the great thing is that we get to kind of have our students interact and interact with other people's students as well. Um, so how is this work funded? So currently we're funded through the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center um, with the hopes of uh, just building the framework to get future NIMH National Institute of Medical, Mental Health uh, funding. So we'll be going for an R01, hopefully within the next calendar year. Yeah. Uh, and a very timely uh, work too, which we'll get to later. Yeah. I think one of the great things about um, the Kennedy Center funding these kinds of projects are one, it increases collaboration across campus. So, you know, we're getting more diversity of thought because, you know, you and I kind of approach questions in different ways, but that's very complementary. But two, it kind of sets the stage for these major grants. So it kind of gives people that like extra kind of funding to try these, these really great ideas that are the foundation of kind of how we start thinking about treating these diseases moving forward, which I think is just such a unique kind of thing that they're doing for this community. And so it's really making a difference in the scientists' lives, but also the lives of the individuals that are affected by these kind of these disorders. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the the project. So I guess like maybe give a little bit of a rundown and maybe some of some findings so far and whether anything's been kind of surprising or, or exciting and kind of where you're thinking things are going. So this project's um, very, very timely, uh, to be honest with you. So what we're studying right now is how the social reward aspect um, comes into play. So we're looking at models of social reward and how are these models perturbed by an environmental stimulus? And that environmental stimulus is actually during development. And that environmental stimulus is called the maternal immune activation. And to break that down is, uh, 
So we're studying the effects of activating the immune system in a pregnant mom. So here's mom, she's you know in her second trimester and we're giving her um, an immune response. So very timely, like I said, we're all sitting at home and during a pandemic right now, a viral yeah. pandemic. And we're activating a system with a viral-like uh, uh, mimetic. So, so something what, that mimics, mimics what the virus does. So it's not necessarily a specific virus, but it elicits the immune response that you would see when a pregnant woman has a virus or something like that. Exactly. And then we'll look downstream and what does that, what are the consequences of that immune activation or that environmental uh, stimulus on the development of those offspring? So are there social um, uh is there social dysfunction? Is there differences in the reward processing through that? Also, another key thing that we look at is repetitive behavior. So the brain region, the reward circuitry is also linked to uh, motor activity. And you can, it's, it's like a component of that is uh, repetitive behaviors. So really what we're trying to do is tease apart the, you know, what are the consequences of this maternal immune activation on development and function of this reward circuit pathway? Right. Well, and the thing that's, I think, so interesting emerging in the, the kind of, you know, the, the scientific neuroscience field are these really important role that the immune system plays in neuronal function. So I think that, you know, a lot of times, you know, when you're coming into the field, you think, okay, there's the immune response, and that's kind of like a peripheral response, you're fighting infection. But we're starting, a lot of your work has shown kind of how critical these immune regulators are in just normal neuronal function. So reward learning, you know, uh, my lab studies um, the dopamine system. And so that's often thought of as, you know, kind of a reward learning molecule. And we found huge effects of immune regulators on just how the dopamine system works in a normal state. And so these are such critical regulators. And so when you're talking about this immune kind of challenge or perturbation that's happening during development, that obviously could easily have wide scale implications for how these systems develop which is a little bit more of a challenge, I think, targeting than just yes or no, because you're talking about something that's happened over time that we now have to figure out what it is and how we reverse it. So like, do you have any thoughts on kind of how to move forward in identifying targets or, or how we kind of solve these problems? So yes, yeah, so one of the things that's really exciting, if you look back at work by uh, Ben Barris and Beth Stevens and things, we know that the immune system is actually critical for normal development. And, you know, which blows my mind. So here you've got two most complicated systems in the body. You've got the, the <laughs> nervous system and the immune system. And Aaron and I are crazy enough to combine the two and try to study. <laughs> and decide, you know, hey, what are the key factors involved in uh, normal development? Um, so it's, it's really, really incredibly challenging. So one of the big questions that we're stuck on is, is there a, a peripheral signal to the central nervous system or that or this, is there an intermediate, such as the, the, uh, the neuroimmune uh, response? So is there a, does the peripheral system send a signal to you know, microglia, for example, which are the resident neuroimmune cells, um, that then triggers activity and changes in the circuit function, for example? So we're at the very basic level of trying to figure out who the players are in this development, during development, and then the pathophysiology that underlies that. So is it- right. the 
And I think one of the things that, that's kind of, you know, maybe something that, that people would be interested in is, is really how difficult of a question this is to parse. And so, you know, with science, we have a lot of different kinds of technology. And I think one of the things is that as we are starting to kind of get into these neuroimmune signaling pathways, is that technology is developing really quickly, but maybe not quickly enough for some of these really precise answers. And Brad has all kinds of really cool tools to be able to record from cells in the brain and see how their activity changes to genetically modify different kinds of either immune cells or neurons to see how those change, how they respond. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of some cool tools and like how you're thinking about what aspects of kind of plasticity in the brain are maybe important for these responses and how, how like what we need going forward to continue kind of measuring these and figuring out what else uh, we need to know. So one of the cool approaches that we're using right now that we're pretty excited about and builds on my background in science is looking at single individual neurons and how they are connected. So one of the things we're doing right now is mapping on a temporal basis of when are adaptations occurring in a brain region called the nucleus cumbens, a key integrator of external and internal stimulus, and that leads to uh, reward processing. So what this brain region does is it, uh, these, it makes connections with important brain regions such as the cortex, et cetera. And these inputs can be modified during development. So you can get a whole lot of inputs to say, hey, which one is the right input that we want to work with? And then those, those two inputs then uh, get strengthened and they maintain those inputs. But the other inputs have to go away to get kind of a signal to noise type thing. Right. I think that's an interesting kind of thing to, to think about with development is it's not just you want more neurons. Right. So you're thinking about how certain synapses are strengthened and certain are weakened. And it's not just, oh, well, we want to promote growth. I think a lot of times when people are thinking of neurodevelopmental disorders, they think there's just a deficit in something. But the thing is, you can have just as many problems if you have too many connections and not the right ones have been pruned versus having not enough. And so it's, it's, it makes it even more complicated because we can't just give things that increase plasticity or decrease plasticity because the plasticity has to be at certain places at certain times. And this is the infinite complexity of how this, this kind of happens. But I think that's the thing about basic science is that first we need to know the kind of have that kind of precision one, what exactly is going on? And I think that's what kind of makes your lab so unique is you have these tools to look at kind of individual cells and synapse levels. And then the next question is in those cells we found are important. How do we find druggable targets that could reverse those things? And so I think for you guys, I mean, you, you do a really good job of identifying targets in cells. And I mean, you've had a lot of different kind of papers where you've knocked out certain proteins in cells and showed how that affects the neuronal function and behavior. And so starting to kind of hone in on those targets, I think is a kind of cool, cool thing you've also been doing because you yeah. had some stuff with the, the TRL4 as well, correct? Yeah, so the toll-like receptor 4 is an immune uh, 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 recognizing, it's an immune molecule, immune protein. So if we, oftentimes in the greeter lab, we take things from a sledgehammer approach. And this TLR4, for example, is a major activator of the immune system that we can target then 
and say, hey, if we get rid of this major player or if we overstimulate this major player, what adaptations occur in the brain and when do they occur? So that's another thing that's really big, especially in development, right? We have to figure out when are these modifications happening and, and what are the consequences? So for example, some of the work that uh, uh, Aaron and I have done recently, we've seen a shift in these, what's called these supernumerary uh, synapses. Again, this, this is pretty preliminary data, but it looks like we, in, in our normal development, we see a, a lot of these connections that develop and then they go away and you strengthen those, those important connections. But this process is shifted by about two days in development in, in the life of a mouse. And two days in development is really a long time, uh, to be honest. And so that shift in, to, uh, in that development means that other parts of the brain that are developing are developing at different paces. And so that can really lead to disrupting of how these connections are made. And so like Aaron was saying, we can then uh, just use uh, these electrophysiological techniques to, and pharmacology to determine who are the players that are being, um, that are being modified. Yeah, and I think the kind of neat thing about Vanderbilt too is like an environment is that we have these, these kind of infrastructure that other people don't have. So like if we identify targets, we have things like the drug discovery center that can make compounds that target these. And so, you know, one of the really big strengths of our institution is you have people like you and me who do these kind of in the weeds, really precise, like what things are important and when. But you also have people who are doing these, these kinds of studies where you have their developing compounds. Let's say we say we've identified this receptor. We need to be able to, to modulate it in some way. How do we do this? And we have medicinal chemists who say, okay, here's the structure of the compound you need. They can screen them. And then you can start to say, okay, well, now that we have a compound, what does manipulating that do to social behavior? What does manipulating that do to these symptoms? Okay. And then we also have the infrastructure to get these things through to clinical trials, which is, which is a kind of cool, you know, unique way to think about science. I think sometimes at institutions, people get really in the scientific weeds, but they don't interact with people who do the kind of human side. And here I, we kind of have everything. So I think it's, it gives me, I don't know, it gives me a unique perspective of kind of the, the people that we're, we're, we're trying to help and how to study you know, their, their disorders in our models and how that can actually kind of you know, move science forward in that kind of realm. We also have the other direction too with BioView, right? So we can look at a, a phenotype of an individual patient. What, is, what, are, what are their that patient present with and we can find out their their genetic makeup and then go and work backwards and you know figure out how is this targetable is this a drug a therapeutic target so it's a lot of fun Vanderbilt's pretty amazing with for that yeah the bioview stuff is so neat yeah my lab does a lot of um, big data transcriptional work and so one of the things and this is kind of dovetails with Brad stuff is, is if you can identify cells that are really, really important in some behavioral process, social interaction and dysregulation in maybe autism spectrum disorders, we can actually isolate those cells and we can do kind of big data, like genetic identification on them. And we can say, what makes these cells unique? Are there targets in these cells? And if we can identify targets in our models, we can go back in, we can do it either way, right? You can start from the human aspect and say, What's coming up that's different? But you can start from the animal aspect that says, in these cells, what makes these cells unique? 
is that in human, is that coming up as is uh, something that's dysregulated in humans as well? And so there's a, a lot of kind of really strong crosstalk between our big data kind of patient records, our big data, because those patient records all have DNA and RNA information with them, as well as all kinds of other biological samples. And then, then you have us where we can actually study what those mutations do in the cells that we think they're important for. So that I think there's a lot of really kind of cool stuff on the horizon um, for these disorders, which is, is they're hard. They're hard problems to solve, unfortunately. But to quote my uh, former mentor, Rob Malenka, it's almost to your advantage an embarrassment of riches at the resources we have. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I, I've never seen anything like this. Like usually like their, their schools have like a strength, right? Like, you know, I went to grad school at Wake Forest and they are like the top place for animal models of substance use disorder. That is what they do. And that is what they do well. And there's nobody that does it better than them. And then, you know, you know Vanderbilt, now that, that we've hired a bunch of people, we actually have a really good uh, center too. So we're, we're giving them a run for their money. But then you come here and you have that. You have the Kennedy Center. You have the, the drug development people, the BCNDD. You have all of these big data, you know, computational people. You have the human aspect where we have the hospital, we have the psychiatry. And so you, it, it's really... It's really amazing for such a small place that we have so many resources and so many strong people, but I think it's because they emphasize the, the people doing the work over everything else. And then that gives people the freedom to kind of do these kind of cool projects that are maybe a little bit out there, but really are what are, you know, moving science forward even faster than other what, and then these kind of smaller steps. Um, so I guess one, like, how do you think about if you're like, take it, we take a, we're like in the weeds. So let's take a step back now. So I guess when we're thinking about like kind of patients and families, and I, I think my thing is always when I, when I'm talking about my work is why, why should people care that we're doing this and kind of how, how do you see this as moving kind of our understanding of these disorders forward, but also kind of maybe how we treat them and how, how they kind of should think about this kind of work that we're doing. So really it's about um, looking at that gene environment interaction and what genes are susceptible to um, you know, these environmental stimuli. And working backwards, each um, patient may present itself with a different behavior as I mentioned before. And so if we can model these in animals, we can then figure out in these models, what is the best therapeutic target? And then we've got a, a mechanism for precision medicine. So it really builds on to that idea of a truly, you know, a mechanism for this, this precision medicine. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a place that we're gonna go in the future. And as we have more kind of data capacity, I think it's gonna become easier and easier with these kind of big data approaches that Vanderbilt's kind of, you know, on the, the front edge of is that we'll be able to, if we know gene by environment interactions, we can get the genome information from each individual patient really quite easily. And so it'll be doing that and then saying, going back into our database and saying, okay, well, what kinds of things does this specific interaction drive? Are there different treatment strategies that work better in these individuals versus these? And I think that's actually going to be really powerful because these, these neuropsychiatric diseases are so much more complicated than others. There, there's not a single gene. There's not a single mutation. You can't just CRISPR out this, this gene and fix it. It's, it's really complicated. Like you're talking about the developmental window. It's not just something's up or down. It's that something is, is kind of 
organize itself maybe differently than, than in other systems. And so how do we kind of mitigate the consequences of that? And it doesn't present the same way in every person. So it's very hard to have a, this is what the disorder looks like. And it's, it's kind of the same across all, I mean, anxiety, depression, substance use, all of these have this massive individual variability that causes different symptoms to present and is caused by different things. And so I think you know, starting like you're saying from this aspect, it's like going to be really important to, to individualize treatment, which I think is really, really important for these disorders. Um, let's see how, well, like for the field, like, I guess like big picture for like our field, how do you think this kind of work is, is going to influence the way people are thinking about, you know, neuroscience or, you know, psychiatric disease work? So, Really, it's, it's there's two components. It's it's really getting into strengthening that connection that the brain is not uh, independent units. You know, as a neuroscientist, you know, I, I I forgot the fact that cells regenerate, neurons don't regenerate, but hey, you know, immune cells do. Yeah. Um, so I really think it's going to help uh, other uh, neuroimmunologists bring to the forefront. The fact that the immune system does play a critical role in almost all the processes that we're studying from the central nervous system. Yeah, I think that that's actually a big thing with a lot of the stuff, especially you're doing that, like, you know, there's been a lot of people that knew the immune system affected, you know, behavior. This isn't like the, the, mo the, like the newest thing, but figuring out exactly how important these immune cells are in supporting normal, just normal neuronal function it's just such a, it's such a big advance in our conceptualization of how the brain works. You know, in, in the beginning of your career, you think, oh, there's a neuron. It sends a signal to another neuron. They release a substance and the other neuron on the other side senses it. And that is how the brain transmits signals. But now we're starting to see that, you know, like you studying microglia, the resident immune cells, those are critical for how those neurons are functioning. There's also all kinds of other cells outside the, you know, that are, they're being regulated by the immune system. And so kind of thinking more about the, we like simple stories, right? It's easier, but thinking about kind of the complexities of how these are interacting, I think is going to be, a, have a, a huge effect on the neuroscience and immune fields moving forward from here. And I think people are just now starting to recognize kind of the imp impact of thinking kind of in this way on, on science and solving problems. I think there is. So, a, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. There is a second component too um, that our work is going to really um, help facilitate the field, and that's the the idea of these temporal processes. And one of the things that studying these developmental um, dis developmental dysfunction is, is, we can learn how these when and how these critical periods function, and perhaps we can learn the mechanisms to reopen these critical periods and then to support positive growth and, and, and I say positive growth, the positive um, regulation of these pathways too. So temporal process is very key as well. That's actually a really important point. I think is that a lot of times as, as somebody who studies these disorders that happen most of the time in adulthood, um, we don't think as much along those lines, but thinking about a developmental disorder, it's not just like we said, more or less, it's that something was kind of connected differently. And so being able to open a window where the connections can kind of be reconnected in, in maybe a different way, or you can promote growth, or you could promote pruning of certain synapses that shouldn't be there is actually a really big step because it's not that easy to just do that in, in the brain. Once the brain is developed, 
those neurons are kind of, they're there. And so finding ways to say, okay, well, how can we promote new, new growth? I mean, there is some cool kind of work looking at the hippocampus and stem cells and do regeneration there. So there's obviously some precedent for, you know, new neurons being generated in the brain. The question is just kind of how do we take advantage of this process to kind of use it as a, a kind of treatment strategy and kind of what else do we need to know to be able to do that, which I think is kind of a, a cool area of research. Well, even on a simpler term is can we get change the number of connections from already existing regions and, you know, strengthen or weaken those connections, rewire the circuitry that's already there. Uh, you know, just like you're rewiring your house, you know, then when you add a new addition, for example. Um, so hopefully in the future we can develop the tools and the tech and, and the understanding to do that. Yeah. So next, next, we kind of kind of touched on this, but like, well, I guess next steps, like what, what, what are you thinking comes next? You know, we talked about grant, like putting a lot of the stuff together into like kind of a big grant, but I guess like, where are you thinking the research is going and kind of how are you thinking about, you know, what do we need to know next to kind of get this closer to, to really understanding how this process works? Um, you know, I've been harping on this temporal window and that's what I'm finding is really, I think is the key that in these, um, you know, uh, manipulations, so the maternal immune activation that we're doing, we see the shift in how the circuit, when the circuit development's occurring, different key um, uh, events are occurring. And so you hinted at the idea of uh, drug targeting um, these, these shifts. You know, and can we identify a, a therapeutic target within this system is really the, the next big step. So we get a shift in the system. What is that? Is there a druggable target? Yeah, I think that'll be that'll be the kind of cool thing is to figure out how how to do that. And I think there's so many like neat tools now, and, and science is becoming easy to easier to kind of do these these kind of screening that you can say, okay, here's some targets. And the great thing about what you can do is you can't you don't just need to find the targets. You can actually figure out what they're doing. Right. So I think it's it's that's the next level. Is one find a target, two figure out what the target's doing, three figure out how to target it. And so I think. You know, you're kind of uniquely positioned to do like all of the above, which is uh, which is, it makes the kind of future of this work really exciting. Um, okay, so last question because this is a uh, kind of Kennedy Center uh, podcast. So, them are there like ways that the Kennedy Center supported your work? Obviously, financial, which is this that's been great. But are there other ways, kind of the center and the, the infrastructure that they they um, provide, kind of supports what you do and the collaborations that you have? Um, so really the Kennedy Center, in my opinion, is all about the people there. Um, so there are great individuals and that I can um, uh, glean information from um, and help direct this area of research. So neurodevelopment's uh, a new field, uh, relatively new. I've been studying for over five years now uh, for me. So having those... New in science years. Yeah, new in science years. <laughs> So having those world-renowned experts there to help guide me uh, in our research program has really been critical. Yeah, I think the really nice thing about, you know, the Kennedy Center specifically is they bring people in, you know, to do some of this work, like you or me even, who my background isn't neurodevelopmental disorders, but it's things that really are important for understanding them. And so they kind of have the vision to have projects where there's people doing stuff maybe they're not normally doing, 
but then interface that with people who do their bread and butter is understanding these and the communication so that we can develop projects that kind of merge the two strengths in a way that is kind of unique. And I think that's, you know, the Kennedy Center does that incredibly well. And I think that's kind of a hallmark of Vanderbilt as a whole is, is having this kind of cross communication between fields, which is just, yeah, like we talked about with grad students, bringing new ideas into field, that's how you make huge advancements in understanding disorders, because it's not the old school way of thinking. It's new ideas. You try them. Some don't work. Some do. You know, it, it, and I think that's a really big kind of powerful, powerful thing of having these kind of centers that really support the work that we're doing. Um, so anything else that you want to like tell us or that we should know or that I should have asked or any of the above? Well, I'm dying to uh, flip the script, as they say. I want to okay. hear from you. So what do you think is on the horizon for discovery and neurodevelopment? What's next? What's the next uh, thing? So I think one of the big things, um, and this is kind of what my lab focuses on, is one, you know, any neurodevelopmental disorder has many, many kind of symptoms and, and, and effects. And some of them are the things driving these kind of behavioral deficits. And some of them are auxiliary things that happen as a result of these deficits. And so I think one of the big things is figuring out kind of the cause and effect relationship between what's going on in the brain and the behaviors we're trying to correct. So the first thing is, you know, what cells in the brain are controlling the behaviors that are problematic for the patient? So social deficits, for example. So, so the way my, my lab kind of goes about solving these problems is we try to say what cells in the brain are critical for social behavior and how are these dysregulated? But once you can identify these cells, you can go in and say, okay, well, what is, what makes these cells unique? And so we do a lot of big data approaches where we can kind of profile the, you know, genetic, you know, information in each of these cells that's associated with one behavior or another. And what that allows us to do is to identify the kind of targets within these cells that are unique to those cells relative to others. And so I think the big thing will be integrating these kind of tools for big data analysis and behavior and neuroscience work and figuring out how we can use these with these kind of new, you know, the horizon, and you see this in almost every field is these computational approaches. So I'm sure people have heard of things like artificial intelligence, machine learning. These things have been huge in developing things like cars. Tesla is huge with these kind of computational kind of mathematical equations. We can apply those same kinds of principles to neuroscience work with all of these big data to identify in this kind of huge amount of data what's important and how we can target these. And so I think going forward, it will be kind of pulling, like you said, from BioView patient data, genetic material from some of our animal models, but also behavior and how neurons work and putting these all together and saying, how do these fit together into some sort of puzzle? Not just this is up or down, but how does this up or down drive specifically this type of behavior, but not this type? And so, you know, it's a complicated problem, but with all these kind of, you know, computing power and all of these kind of cool, you know, like computational tools, I think there's going to be a lot of space, especially in psychiatric disease work, to use them to understand kind of how those things are playing together and how we can target them. So, I don't know, I'm excited about the basic side of creating models, but then the clinical side of using those models to help patients. And so, I don't know, that's, that's my, my, my goal. It's like a 20 year goal, what I just said, but that's, you know, if Vanderbilt keeps hires me and keeps me around a while, maybe we'll solve the problem. So 
We'll see. It's great to hear your excitement. I love your enthusiasm. <laughs> My enthusiasm is what keeps me going. It's crazy. As I get older, the enthusiasm goes down, but the students' enthusiasm is just staying high. So they're like, uh, I'm, I'm excited about kind of the, the way science works and having them and collaborators kind of keep you going. So, um, but yeah, so I guess, you know, thanks for sitting down and chatting. This was actually really fun. It's nice in this time where I don't get to see anybody that I get to like, you know, have a conversation about science for some time with someone other than my partner. That's who I'm quarantined with. So are you hanging in there? Yeah, hanging in there, yep. How are you? How's everything with the, the family? They're all, they're all good? It was good, new puppy, keeping me oh. <laughs> This is the time for the new puppy. We have cats and what we've been doing is training our cats to walk on leashes outside. Our neighbors think we're absolutely insane. That's what our time, we don't have kids. So obviously we have to spend our time doing something crazy. So that's what, that's been my time. But, but anyway, thank you. This is so, this was exciting to kind of talk about what we're doing and I'm excited to kind of keep doing it and, and, and kind of share with the, the people who are interested what, what we're working on and where things are going. But anyway, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Promise of Discovery. Be sure to visit the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center website at vkc.vumc.org to learn more about today's episode. And tune in next time for more on the innovative research and intellectual and developmental disabilities from the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center.